Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Gordon. How do you decide when to take on a new task, to change jobs, to really dig into a new project? With 24 hours in every day, seven days a week, 52 weeks in a year, how do we choose when to do things? Is it just random? Should it be? Could we thrive with a little bit more thought? Well, our guest today is Daniel Pink, author of several books, including New York Times bestsellers, Drive, to Sell as Human and a Whole New Mind. And today, we're going to dig into his newest book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Chad, thanks for so much for having me. It's, it's so good to have you here. Why timing? What intrigued you about digging deep into the when of our decision making? I think the main thing that intrigued me was that I didn't know how to do it very well myself. It's like you were saying in the in the in the intro. It's like I was doing it in kind of a random, haphazard way, making decisions about when in the day should I do certain kinds of work, when in the day should I exercise, when should I start a project, when should I abandon a project, and I wasn't making the decisions I thought in a very thoughtful way. Uh, so I started looking at some of the research on timing, and to my amazement, there was a huge amount of research, and it gave us some very very clear guidance on how to get systematically better and smarter about making our decisions about when to do things. And, and what we're hoping to do today in today's podcast is really kind of weaponize some of this knowledge. Right. So let's let's kind of dig into that, okay? Yeah. So we've heard it before. You know, some people even swear by it, maybe more so anecdotally, but people say they're more morning people or they don't really get into their groove later in the day or they're night owls and they thrive after the sun goes down. What did your research find? Is that a thing? That's a big thing. There's a whole field of research called chronobiology, chrono for time, biology for the study of life, that looks at our daily rhythms. And what the research tells us is that, yeah, we do have certain kinds of leanings. Some of us are morning people. We rise early. We go to sleep early. We can call those people larks. Some of us are very different. Uh, we rise later in the day and we stay up later, hit our groove much later in the day. Those are owls. And what the distribution tells us from the field of chronobiology is that about 15% of us are larks, 20% of us are owls, uh, but most of us, two-thirds of us, are kind of in the middle. Um, and that plays a big role in figuring out the ideal time to do certain kinds of tasks. And so in the book, you actually talk about you can kind of figure out where you fit based upon those times, kind of the wake yeah, up and absolutely. go to bedtime. So yeah. that's that's something we could learn in the book. So once you actually figure out where you are yeah. and, and we have that that uh, in, internal clock uh, and we know our wiring, wiring, how do we use that to our advantage? Yeah, well, that's a, what we're looking for here is something that psychologists call the synchrony effect, the synchrony effect. And what this means is that what you want to do is you want to figure out, you want to match your type, that is lark, owl, or in between 
to the task, what kind of task are you doing, to the time. Type task and time. And when we figure out a chronotype, we're basically trying to figure out, essentially, are you an owl? Um, uh, owls are more complicated. Uh, the world is structured in some ways to crush their spirits. <laughs> um, uh, but those of us who are those of us who are larks or in the middle, what I call third birds, we tend to move through the day in this order: peak, trough, recovery. Peak, trough, recovery. Uh, owls tend to move through it in the other order: recovery, trough, peak. Hmm. And what we know is that, and when I say peak, it's basically uh, it's a rise in our mood and a rise in our vigilance. And so for most of us, 80% of us, we hit our, our peak is in the morning. Now, of course, not at the same time for every single person. You know, some of us are, you know, start hitting it at seven, some of us later in the morning. But our peak is when we are most vigilant. Our mood goes up and we're most vigilant. And vigilant is really the key here. Vigilance means you're able to bat away distractions. And so that means that if you, when you figure out your, task, you want to do tasks that are analytic tasks, tasks that require heads down, focus, attention, and energy, writing a report, analyzing data. We're best off doing that kind of work during our peak when we're most vigilant. Again, for most of us, that's the morning. For night owls, it's later in the day. During So, so what we have now is we have our type, we have our task, analytic work. The time to do your analytic work is during the peak. Now, the next stage is what's, what's called what I call the trough. From almost all of us, it's the early to mid-afternoon. That's not good for very much. There is some incredibly alarming data on how bad things can go during that trough period. There are more medical errors. Um, you have uh, in hospitals, you have a big decline in hand washing. You see actually corporate conference calls uh, being much more negative and irritable during that time of day. You see student standardized test scores going down. So the trough, not good for very much. That's when we should be doing our administrative work. And we have a lot of it. We're answering routine emails. We're filling out an expense report. We're you know, uh, doing the kinds of things that don't require a heavy cognitive load. Now, the next stage is the recovery for most of us later in the day. This is a very interesting period because it has two dimensions to it. One, our mood is higher. However, we're less vigilant. So think about that for a moment. Higher mood and less vigilance, that makes it a good time for certain kinds of insight work, certain kinds of creativity. Think about brainstorming. When you're brainstorming, you want to be a little looser and you want to be in a good mood. And what the research is telling us is that if we match our type to our task to our time, we can do a lot better at work. Put your analytic work during the peak, your administrative work during the trough, and your insight and creative work during the recovery. And what the research tells us is that time of day effects, time of day alone, explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on the job. Um, and what we also need to understand, and, and the science is very, very clear on this too, is that we are not the same throughout the day. Our cognitive abilities change throughout the day. They can change in dramatic ways. Um, and how we perform depends on what we're doing. It's incredible. 20%. I mean, you, if you could monetize that, that's, 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 a, that's a tremendous uh, uptick. It's, it's incredible. If you 20% of the variance. So let's, let's, let's say you got Fred and Ed, okay? Fred and Ed, you know, why is Fred a better performer than, than Ed? Um, well, I mean, it's oversimplifying it, but why is Fred a, a better performer than Ed? Okay. It could be that Fred is smarter. It could be that Fred is more conscientious. It could be that Fred has more social advantage. But we can say 20% of it is when Fred is doing his work. That's a big deal. And that's something you can control. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about upticks in business, you, you think about, oh, well, gosh, well, one or 2%, that could be amazing. Totally. But 20%, if I, what would a person pay to increase their Absolutely. output and their ability by 20%? So great, inf- great information, great insight. And so let's move on a little bit more on to kind of the nurturing aspects of what you learned as well. You talk about the power of breaks, you know, taking yeah. a moment before kind of diving into something big or restarting a project. Yeah. You, your research was really eye-opening. Why is the reset? Why why is that kind of that start and stop so powerful? You know, because human beings are not designed to go, 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 go like a robot. Um, we have we 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 can't draw on our maximal energy or brain power at the same level all the time. We need to be recharged. And what's amazing to me is that we routinely recharge our phones, but we sort of look down on recharging ourselves. There's this weird thing. It's a very American thing. It's like we have our roots in Puritanism, where we think that powering through is the most effective thing to do and the most morally virtuous thing to do. And that's just total nonsense. What we know about breaks, the science of breaks is remarkable. Science of breaks is telling us very clearly, we should be taking more breaks, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. So let's talk about that. So if I want to, all right, so you've already helped me. Now I'm, now I'm a 20% more effective person on the job in my life. And I'm, I'm obviously happy. I'm bringing more, more value to my, my job. Now, what can I do? What sort of breaks will help me be even more effective? And, okay. and, 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 this is, and this is one area where the science instills into some very, very straightforward guidance. Uh, here's what we know about breaks. There's some design principles here on breaks. Number one. Something beats nothing. There's a whole line of research on what are called micro breaks. Even a one-minute break, a two-minute break is can, can restore energy, can restore mental acuity. There's even, you know, one simple technique is, which I try to do sometimes, is the is the is the 20, 20, 20 mm. technique, which is every 20 minutes, take 20 seconds and look at something 20 feet away. Right? Even that little small break of Changing your line of vision, lifting your head up can be restorative. So something is better than nothing. Second thing we know about breaks, moving is better than stationary. So if you're going to take a break, get up and walk around. Don't sit at your desk looking at your phone. Get up and walk around. Third thing we know about breaks, social beats solo. There's a lot of research showing that breaks with other people are more replenishing than breaks on our own, even for introverts, which I found a little bit surprising. Fourth thing we know. Uh, outside beats inside. So again, there are incredible replenishing effects of nature on our mental acuity, on our uh, on our well-being. And finally, and this might be the most important thing, fully detached beats semi-detached. So um, even though there's a lot of evidence showing that inadvertent contact at work is a source of ideas and inspiration and innovation, you're better off if you take a break with a work colleague not talking about work. Uh, and you're better off not having your phone. You want to detach fully. And so if you think about this, the you know we have the design principles for an ideal break. Take a walk. Take 10 minutes to go for a walk outside with someone you like, leaving your phone on your desk and not talking about work. And if you do something as simple as that for you know twice an afternoon, you're going to see uh, an uptick in performance. You're going to see an uptick in how much energy you have. 
So I, I tested some of this out a little bit, and I did notice that that I did come back much more recharged. But I think the key of this, you, you mentioned it a little bit, you got to leave that phone down. You got to oh, flip it over because yeah. if you start digging in there, that's not really a break at all. That's your, it's your, not a break your, at all. You're firing. You got to leave your phone behind. And you know this is this is proving to be you know one of those great unintended consequences of something otherwise positive. Uh, and, you know, and I see it, you see it with, with teenagers, especially being addicted to these phones. You see it even with people my age, unable to get rid of their phone, looking at it first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and 87 times, 87 times during the day. Um, and, but this idea of detachment is, is, is essential. And what we have to understand here is that is, and, and this is very, this is so deeply ingrained in Americans, is that breaks are not a sign of weakness. Breaks are not a concession. Breaks are not a deviation from performance. Breaks are part of performance. Uh, and any high performer in any domain, musicians, actors, dancers, athletes, they know that they have to be intentional and systematic about taking breaks. And the rest of us, uh, white collar athletes, should be doing the same. I, I love that you talk about uh, bringing back the the siesta. And I will say that I, I love the concept, but I, as I learned, I was doing it wrong. But I, I hate naps. I oh, hate it yeah. because I because there was that point of no return where if I napped totally. a little bit too long, it wiped me out for the rest of the day. So there's if you have the ability, and not everybody listening is going to have the ability yeah, yeah, to yeah, just yeah. take a nap, especially in our culture. But what what's your what do you recommend if somebody wanted to take even more of a break and have some shut eye? Yeah, well, I mean. I'm not calling for a return of like the Spanish siesta where, you know, we take three hours in the afternoon and drink some wine and kick off for three hours. I mean, some days that sounds good, but, but, um, but, um, what what we're talking about is that the siesta cultures were onto something. They knew that breaks were part of the day. They knew that breaks were part of how people felt better and did better. And so, um, but, and naps, here's the thing about naps. I'm with you, Chad, entirely. I was a reluctant napper. I would nap occasionally. I always felt terrible after I woke up. And what I discovered is that I was doing it wrong, that Mm. the ideal nap is incredibly short. The ideal nap is 10 to 20 minutes long. Uh, That's it. You get all the restorative effects of a nap um, with not what you were feeling was called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy, fuzzy headed feeling you get when you wake up for a nap. And so uh, what really seems to be most restorative, gives us the most bang for the buck, is a 10 to 20 minute nap, no more than that. Um, you get a remarkable amount of restoration in a very short amount of time. I, I loved it. This is something that was in the book. I want to share it because it's something that I'm going to try the next time I do it. You say, make your espresso, um, have your espresso, lay down, close your eyes, set your uh, cl- your phone alarm for 20, 25 minutes, and that is, that'll, that, that's exactly the amount of time you want. And your the caffeine will actually be kind of working at about the time that you're waking up. Yeah, this is remarkable. There's some actually yeah. some really, really good research on this. And, and if there's a sort of an ideal nap to take, it's this, exactly as you said, Chad. So set your timer for maybe 25 minutes. Have a cup of coffee. I prefer drip coffee to espresso because that has more caffeine in it. Have a cup of coffee. All right, have a cup of coffee. Um, and then, you know, what I do is I put on these noise canceling headphones, I sit in a chair and I try to go to sleep. Um, now I can usually fall asleep in, I don't know, 10 or 11 minutes. So let's say I fall asleep in 11 minutes and my alarm goes off after 25 minutes. That gives me a 14 minute nap. I'm four, I'm asleep for 14 minutes. That's really good. Actually, that's between that 10 and 20 minute mark. All right. And so 
I have the perfect, the ideal length nap. Uh, I don't have the sleep inertia. Um, that that even that 14 minutes of nap has smoothed out all the the nicks and scuffs in my mental ice. But there's a bonus because, as you said, it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. So at the moment I'm waking up from my nap, no sleep inertia. I get that added boom of caffeine, and this is something that is referred to as a nappuccino. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, let's 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 uh, shift a little bit and talk about because we've already kind of talked about tackling our day personally, but let's talk about uh, um, the timing of things. So, sure. you know, one of the, the the thoughts that came to mind for me is, you know, probably every one of our listeners, you know, they, at some point they've taken on a New Year's resolution mm-hmm. to varying success, lose weight, get active, stop drinking as much, put the smartphone down. Um, what do you recommend if you want to make a big change and stick with it, but not just on January 4th? How do you, what's the timing of starting things so you're successful? Yeah, there's some interesting research on this. Uh, it comes from some researchers at the University of Pennsylvania on what are called fresh start dates. Uh, That is, just as in the course of a day, there are some times of day that are better for certain things than others, there actually are some dates of the year that are better for doing the sorts of things that you're describing, Chad, uh, these fresh start dates. These fresh start dates are what what these researchers call temporal landmarks. they, They stand out in time in the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. And what they do is they get us to stop, slow down, and essentially open up a fresh ledger on ourselves, the way a business would at the beginning of a new quarter, at the beginning of a new year. And what does this mean practically? And I, and I love your way of putting it. How do we weaponize this idea of fresh start dates? Here's how to do it. Um, if you want to have some kind of big behavior, uh, even modest behavior change, you're going to be more likely to start and more successful in carrying it out if you pick certain fresh start dates. So start it on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. This is true in companies too. Like if you have a change initiative, even a modest one, don't start on a Thursday. Start on a Monday rather than a Thursday. Start it on the first of the month rather than the 13th of the month. Start it on the company's, you know, the day of the company's, the day after the company's two-year anniversary rather than 16 days before the company's anniversary. Um, If you want to make a change in your relationship, do it the day after your wedding anniversary, not five days before your wedding anniversary. If we're intentional about the dates on which we start things, we have a slightly better chance of sustaining that behavior change. And it goes exactly what you were saying before, Chad. It doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Okay. So here's the thing. Let's say I have a, you know, I'm going to start a diet and let's say I have a 10% chance of sticking to my diet. If I start on a fresh start date, maybe I have a 15% chance. I'll take that. I'll take, you know, especially in business, when you're doing things over and over again, if you can go from a 10% chance to a 15% chance or a 15% chance to a 21% chance, I'll take that. That's how we make change. This podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more and there's a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization, go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. And they have a special offer right now. Send an email to podcast at KenBlanchard.com with leader chat in the subject line. Now through the end of summer of 2018, one grand prize winner chosen randomly will receive a free one-on-one call with Ken Blanchard. Five others will receive a signed copy of Ken's latest book, Servant Leadership in Action. Let's shift again a little bit. So the research, um, you called it kind of the midpoint slump. I found that to be really interesting. I remember when I was in grad school and and almost without fail, 
there'd be this sense of dread about halfway <laughs> through the semester that I wasn't where I wanted to be. Yeah. I, I didn't use, I looking back and I wasted all this time. Yeah. I didn't use it wisely. I was behind on a lot of projects. And then what that did to me was I, I'd start to procrastinate at that point even worse, or, or I, mm-hmm. my motivation would just go out the window. So A, why does that happen? Yeah. And then B, what can I, I can't be alone in that. What can we do yeah. to get back on track? Yeah, it's not clear exactly why that happens, Chad. Um, you know, I think uh, I think it's I think it's complex. I mean, a lot of times we prefer the short term pleasure of you know of uh, watching a dog video to the long term pleasure of getting good work done, and that's you know we're 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 bad at i mean it's something it's a it's a it's partly a timing thing we're we're yeah. we're bad forecasters of our future we're bad at postponing um gratification um but the other thing there might be something kind of natural about it too because there's research showing that if you give it this is connie gersick at ucla now at yale she's done research where she looked at how do teams actually move through projects so if you give a team um 31 days to do a project uh, how do they actually move through it? And our conventional view of that is that, okay, they start, they make progress, steady progress, and they go to the end. And what she found, no, 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 no. They take the Chad method, all right? What they do is during the first half, they don't do very much at all, all right? They procrastinate, they have status competitions, that kind of thing. But it's only at a certain point where they suddenly get their act together and start moving. And she found eerily that that was almost always at the midpoint. So that team that had 31 days, they didn't get started in earnest until, you know, day 15. Uh, you had another, t- uh, you know, other team. Give a team 11 days. They don't get started in earnest until day six. Um, and over and over again, there was something about that midpoint um, that, uh, that, that catalyzed people. Uh, the sense that, oh, my God, we squandered half of our time. We have to get going. I, I call it the uh-oh effect. But it seems to be a natural, fairly natural part of midpoints. Sometimes midpoints bring us down. But other times they, they fire us up. And again, I'm going to use your word again. We can weaponize this midpoint effect if we do one more thing, which is to uh, imagine that we're a little bit behind at that midpoint. Um, there's some interesting research from the NBA showing that teams that are trailing at halftime by one point are more likely to win than teams that are ahead by one point. Usually the team ahead at halftime has a much greater chance of winning the game. They have more points already, and the game's half over. But the exception to that is teams trailing by one are more likely to win than teams that are up by one. Trailing by one at halftime is equivalent to being ahead by two, as weird as that sounds. And there's other kinds of research showing that if people sense there are, if you put people at a midpoint of something and they say they're, tell them, you know, they, they have a sense they're way behind, they can give up. If you say you're way ahead, they can get complacent. But telling people that they're a little bit behind can be a powerful, powerful motivator. So you can double up on that midpoint spark by recognizing the midpoint of projects and then imagining you're a little bit behind. I love it. Yeah, the you know the only thing I love better than a deadline is a long time until that deadline. The relief that that gives me. <laughs> right, exactly. The Chad method. I like that. Maybe we could write a yeah. book about that. Okay. All right. So we've, we've discussed the beginnings and the midpoints. Um, I found this to be really, uh, I, I, it, the whole book is incredibly interesting, but, but when you talk about in- endings. Oh yeah. And I love endings too. Yeah. So how can we, how can we take that either knowing that it's coming or it, 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 it's, it's just coming naturally? How can we shape the end to our advantage? Well, I mean, this is, it's, it's similar uh, in that, 
um, we have to, you know, similar to a lot of stuff we were talking about, we have to be intentional about it. And we have to understand at the outset that beginnings have one effect on our behavior, midpoints have another effect on our behavior, endings have yet another effect on our behavior. And one of the things that endings do to your deadline point is that endings can help us help us energize. Um, and so being able to see the end makes people kick a little bit harder. So there's some very intriguing research showing, for instance, um, you have two groups of people gift certificates. Okay, one group has three weeks to use the gift certificate. One group has two months to use the gift certificate. And amazingly, the group that has less time is more likely to use the gift certificate. Um, well, that seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, but it's because the end is, they can see the end. And the end, seeing the end can help us energize. At the same time, uh, endings have other effects. They um, Endings have how an experience, a life, and a, a customer transaction, anything ends has a disproportionate effect on how people will encode it, how they will evaluate it and record it. Um, and so in our customer interactions, uh, client interactions, we have to be very intentional about how things end because that's how often they're going to be remembered. It's true in our personal lives as well. It's true for something like a family vacation. Mm. Uh, how a family vacation ends has a big effect on how people remember it for a very, very long time. Um, and then, you know, a lot of a lot of things that happen at the end of things is that people start looking for meaning and purpose and significance. And so I think that leaders, entrepreneurs can use endings as meaning makers, too. Um, and so, again, a lot of this goes back to just being aware of these time based aspects of our life that, you know, our lives are episodic and episodes have beginnings, middles and ends. And each has a different effect on us. So you talk about endings and and uh, the way that affects us, uh, and you talk about from a business perspective. So I want to latch onto that for just a second. Is there a tip? Is that is some? Is there an example of something where um, an organization has really harnessed kind of that ending, whether it's in a customer situation or a career situation, but something that they've done that you were like, that's the right way to do it? Okay, I'll get, and I'm surprised this isn't done more. I'll give you one example of it. it's a well known example, which is this: if you think about any sort of retail experience we have. Uh, companies are generally unintentional about how that transaction ends. They give you the receipt, they say goodbye and thank you. Uh, then think about, this is a, a, a very, very well-known example, and I'm surprised it's not um, uh, copied more. Nordstrom. You buy something at Nordstrom, the, the clerk will come, the salesperson will come out from behind the counter and hand you your bag in person, face-to-face, and thank you. Not just handing you a receipt, but they actually will intentionally walk from behind the counter and thank you and, and thank you in that direct, more human way. Um, and, and that very intentional act of how the transaction ends can be very powerful. And you can see this. I'll give you a place to, you know, if, if for your listeners who might doubt this, you can see this in the wild by going to Yelp. Just pull up, you know, wherever you are, pull up Yelp reviews for a restaurant. And what you'll find is that when people write Yelp reviews, a disproportionate amount of what they write about is how the meal ended, say for restaurants, mm. right? They screwed up my check and were jerks about it. I hate this place. They gave me a free dessert I didn't expect. I love this place. I left my keys in the booth and they came running after me into the parking lot. I love this place. Um, and so we can be much more intentional about how these uh, experiences end. Uh, I interviewed a lot of teachers who do some remarkable things for ending. So there's one teacher in Chicago, outside of Chicago. Uh, he's an economics teacher in high school. He has his students, his seniors, write letters to themselves that he mails to them 
five years later. Uh, there's a college teacher who will take her students out to a local pub and they will make toasts to each other about what they learned from each other at the end of the semester. Um, and so, um, so if we're very intentional about, about our endings, we're going to have better experiences and then the people we're working with, whether they're students, whether they're our family, whether they're our customers, are going to remember those experiences more vividly and more positively. You have such a way with with storytelling and and kind of creating some some insight into areas where people may not have thought to dig a little bit deeper. What, you know, what was it about this book that when you look back that surprised you the most or or just really was the one of the moments where you're like, wow, that really is interesting. You know, I think there were I mean, at one level, I was surprised by how powerful the effects of time of day were on our performance. I mean, I had a vague sense, hey, there's going to be some differences, but how big the differences were really blew me away. The other thing, Chad, that blew me away was the research, believe it or not, on choral singing, on the effects of singing in a choir. Um, the effects of choral singing, not singing per se, but singing in a group are extraordinary. They are a mood booster. Singing in a choir is a mood booster. It's a prophylactic against depression. It, it improves our immune response. It raises our pain threshold. I mean, choral singing is as is the only thing I've seen that even begins to rival exercise as like uniformly, unequivocally good for us. So as we kind of wrap up here and where we've just got time for just a little bit more, I want to ask you kind of to think about uh, our listeners and what they've heard so far. What's the one thing that you want them to kind of take away from our conversation? Um, I've used this word a lot and I'll repeat it. Be intentional about your when decisions. We are very intentional in our work about what we do. Most of your listeners probably have a to-do list. We're intentional about who we do it with. You know, we focus a lot on hiring. We're intentional about how we do things. But when it comes to when we do things, we're not intentional. We think it doesn't matter, and it matters a lot. I'll give you one example of it. It's something that's in part of every business person's life. Meetings. When we schedule meetings, the only criterion we use is availability. We never think about what kind of meeting is it? Is it analytical? Is it insight? Who's going to be there? We just look at availability. We're not intentional about our win decisions. If we are, I really think we can do better at work and actually be a little happier. I like that. You, it's it's the theme of the entire conversation. Be intentional about how you 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 structure your day, about how you address your day, how you start things, how you deal with things as they're going on, and and making sure people have uh, um, the last impression is as important as the the first impression in a lot yes. of cases. Nicely said. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. So many great insights. If people wanted to dig a little bit deeper into Dan Pink, where would you send them? I would send them to danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. It's a website, has all my books, all kinds of other fun stuff, some resources, a lot of free things, some videos, all kinds of groovy things to help you um, work a little smarter. I love it. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thanks, Chad. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. 
Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. You know, I was excited when I heard that Chad was going to interview Daniel Pink. Uh, I think he's one of the great thinkers in our field, and, and uh, this is a great session. You've got to listen to this session and get his book, Win, The Secrets, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And he's talking about when is the best time to do what, you know? And it's interesting. People have asked me, you know, how have you been able to write so many books, you know, and all? is because I found my timing, according to uh, Pink, you know, and he said some people are morning people, you know, and, and that's, you know, their, their exciting, energizing time. And some people are night people and all, and some people maybe are in between a midday type, but you got to find out where you are because when it's your time, that's your most creative thing. What I found is that uh, I get up early in the morning, you know, uh, you know, 5.30 or 6, and my most creative thinking when I'm working on a book is in the morning. And then the midday, you know, I'm pretty good at maybe doing editing and maybe, you know, doing some work at the, at the company and, and all, but not the real creative uh, thinking. And then at night, you know, to me, that's downtime. You know, Margie and I watch movies. We, we have dinners with family members and all that kind of thing. And we're in bed by 8.30, quarter to 9, and that's why we can get up early in the morning. But I know other people who are night people, and they don't go to bed till, you know, 12, 1 o'clock at night, and they want to sleep till 9 or 10 in the morning, and they have their best creative work time then. So it's so interesting to find out when is your best time to do what. To do what is what's most important in terms of your world of work. And he says you got to also take breaks. You know, don't just grind it out, even if it's in your top time. And you also need to have balance in your life, too, for your family and your friends and all that kind of thing. And I think the best time then is probably when it's your, you know, semi-downtime. And so uh, this is an exciting show, Chad. You did a great job interviewing him. And, Daniel, thanks for, for your insights. Uh, it was very, very helpful to me to reflect on and all of you to listen to and share with your colleagues. 